When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there there were gathered together against you holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your ser- to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs of wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. May God apply the reading of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. Last week, I had the opportunity, um, just the way things worked out, to spend some time with a, a really good friend of mine, and he works at a gold and bullion shop. So people come in and they exchange, you know, their coins or they buy bars, uh, you know, eagles, maples, all that, all the, that kind of a thing. So they come in to do this buying and selling and I happened to be spending some time with him where this was taking place. And it was fascinating for me uh, to watch these things happen and who comes in and what, what they're requesting and how much money people are laying out for these things as well. And one of the things that I observed that was really interesting is that there was an apparatus that my friend used known as a uh, precious metals verifier. So it's, it's not that large, and he would pull it out from behind the desk. And when somebody brought something into the shop that they said was of great value and that they wanted to sell to the shop to get, to get money for it, he would pull that out and set it right on the counter where it was in view of both of them. And he would put it on this precious metals verifier. And what he was doing was confirming two things. First of all, that it was actually a precious metal. And second of all, it would give some kind of an indicator as to the purity of the precious metal itself. And of course, uh, he would use it, you know, conversely, if 
the if somebody came in to purchase you know a bar of gold or or of silver uh, something like that the, the same thing would happen he would pull that out and he would set it on the counter so that they could both see it and it would also confirm to the person that was purchasing the precious metal from the shop hey that what the shop is claiming to give you when you you know or to, that you are purchasing is in fact the precious metal that we say it is and here is the purity that you can expect this, um, this precious metal to, to have. And so the device itself, the apparatus, did nothing to either contribute or to diminish the value of the thing that was you know, being purchased in either direction. It was only there to verify what somebody was claiming to be true. Someone brings in the, the, the drawer or the, or the can full of stuff. My grandparents gave this to me. This has got to be worth a lot. And so the apparatus is used to, make, to, to confirm that what you're saying about this is true. And what we're going to look at today, specifically in Acts 4, verses 32 to 35, in just these four verses, is we're going to see that these verses act for us in a way that is similar to this apparatus that I was watching be put to work on the counter at this gold and bullion shop. It, in a sense, will shine a light. It's setting it right on the counter for you to see the legitimacy and the purity of your faith. Now, many of you, I'm guessing, have read, and probably, if you've read it, you've also prayed through Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. These scripture verses is that. If you mean it, if you meant it when you have prayed that, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, then these verses will certainly put that to the test. In fact, I would even say at the outset, as you hear what God's word has to say today, for you to set your pride aside and hear the word, be sensitive to God's application, the, whole, the Holy Spirit's application of his word to your individual <clears throat> situation, specifically as it relates to your money and your possessions. This is not an attempt by me to se you know, separate you from your money, to somehow get more out of you, to, to talk you into, to pressure you into giving more to the church. The desired outcome from this today really has, is not a matter of income, it, meaning the church's income or your income. What this is, is a method of verification. This is a tool for you to examine your own heart. You may be familiar with the phrase, follow the money. You may have even used that phrase before, um, but it originated from the movie in 1976, All the President's Men, and that movie was a dramatization over the real events of uh, the Watergate scandal that was connected to President Nixon. And so in the movie itself, 
what happens is that there is um, an anonymous um, a, a, a guy that's basically tipping off a reporter, a guy that's known uh, as Deep Throat, and this anonymous informant along the way cryptically tells the journalist to follow the money, and that by doing that, what the, uh, what the informant was doing was telling the journalist to follow the trail of money because you're going to connect some dots. And to, that, and to this day, that principle of follow the money is still accurate. It absolutely reveals a link, be, a link between two things, and we can see that in Scripture. Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can draw the connection between treasure and heart. And that same principle bore itself out in a unique way right here in the early church. Now, I've made the point as we're, you know, we're now to Acts chapter 4, but I've made the point at the beginning of Acts and as we've made our way here that this is the creation of the church. This is uh, of the early church. This is like the earliest of the early church. This is just barely getting off the ground. This is a transition from the age of the temple. All of that has passed. Now we have entering in the kingdom of God. It's being inaugurated here. It's not fully consummated. It won't be fully consummated until Christ returns. And so we are in what we uh, tend to refer to as that whole already and not yet span of the early church up until the final consummation at the end of the age and what Jesus frequently refers to as the last days. So we are in that span of time, but right here at the front end of those last days, just as the church age is beginning, it seems that there are some amazing things that are happening through the power of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit in entering in, as God is entering in this new age and everything is changing, the end of the, the temple age, the tearing of the curtain, and now the creation of the church itself, we have certain things happening under the power of the Holy Spirit that is demonstrating that there is a complete shift in history that I don't think in some ways that we can expect to continue throughout the entirety of those last days. I'm not trying to be flippant, but if you want to think about it this way, there's almost a sense of a grand opening of the church. There are, there's just more happening in a more demonstrative way at the very front end of the creation of the church, at the very beginning of the last days. Now, last week, I was actually pointing out the fact that all believers have the Holy Spirit, and yet we also know when the church was just getting off the ground that the first time that the Holy Spirit was given, it was given in a very unique way at Pentecost. We also know that the church continues to grow now, that the um, uh, that God is expanding his kingdom to all corners of the world, and yet we saw in a, in a really unique way, in a special way in the early church, that Peter preaches a sermon, and in one day we have 3,000 people, 3,000 souls that have committed their lives to Christ. 
Also, we saw, um, well, we know that today when Christians get together, there are, are, there are powerful things that take place through the Holy Spirit when we pray and we trust that the Lord is at work when we gather together to pray. But we also saw that in the early church, that uh, in fact, just last week, the, the, the verses that we looked at, that Stephen, some of which Stephen read just a little bit ago, we saw that when the people came together to pray, that the Holy Spirit was present, but in a special way. In fact, the Holy Spirit caused the walls of the building that they were in to shake. So in light of this idea of the already and the not yet, there was in some ways an emphasis right at the beginning of demonstrating this change. And I think one thing that was going on is that God was giving them an extra dose, or continuing with my, you know, grand opening theory, he was giving them this, this picture, this experience of this complete change from the time of the temple to the time of the church, and it expressed itself in a way that gave this new church age a taste, a foretaste of what they could expect at the end of the age. And in fact, in these next four verses that we're looking at in verses 32 to 35, we see that it actually is another installment of that unique application of the Holy Spirit that points to a future end-of-age reality. And even though it, something special and unique is happening for the early church in this scriptural passage— and it's pointing toward a reality that has yet to come at the end of the age. It also informs how we should live in between the two. So what that does is it basically sets up the question then of, okay, well then in what way? How can we read these verses and know three things? One is what is descriptive, so it's just talking about what happened to them, but what can we take from that that's prescriptive where we say, okay, well, not only did that happen to them, but it applies to us today. And then the last thing that we're going to look at is how can we use this to examine our own lives as a point of verification for ourselves. So the difference between then and now, one of the unique differences is that I, they had an exceptional and a unique communal aspect to what's going on. In fact, if you just look at verse 32 here in Acts 4, notice how it starts. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Keep in mind that already in the early church, by the time you even get to Acts chapter 4, you're talking about thousands of people. Right? I already referenced it. We already had one sermon that produced 3,000 believers. So that, that's baseline. So you're talking about this overwhelming conversion of, it to, to, of, to, of people to Christ, of Jews coming to Christ in the area of Jerusalem at the preaching of the apostles and the full number of them. So there's a sense in which all of them were of one heart and soul. 
So societal barriers were just falling to the ground. Barriers that, that I think are, I mean, we have barriers in our own culture and in our own society to be sure, but I think they had some that, that probably were more, um, that we would think are enormous, you know, you know lots of injustices that, that to our culture today wouldn't put up with. And yet here we see, because of this whole thing of the full number of those who believe being of one heart and one soul, we see young and old, we see Jew and Gentile, we see rich and poor, we see powerful and weak all coming together. Like there, there is something special going on in this early church where the full number of those we're experiencing these walls just coming down overnight, just boom, everything changing. And we also then can look at that and go, wow, look how amazing that is that that's how that was rolling out. And we can appreciate that that is a taste of what it is that we have to look forward to at the end of the age. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, Verses 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then when I moved down, halfway through verse 14, it continues, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither, uh, neither thirst any more. The, sh the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What we see here that we can expect at the end of the age is not that there are no differences among people whatsoever, that somehow we all look the same. No, those differences are all there, but there's no condescending attitude. There's no judgment. There's no hate. There's no division. There's no pride. There's no selfishness. And then the second thing we see is that there is no one that is in need. There is a special kind of unity, and there is not any kind of need. And so what we know will be in a perfected way at the end of the age after Christ returns, we actually can see at the earliest part of the creation of the church where they are experiencing this. Now, it's not here back in, in Acts in the church where they're doing all these things. This isn't a form of communism. This isn't some kind of socialism, right? In those political um, schemes, in, in, in the, the design of those, there is somebody that is forcing you to give. That's not what is taking place here. No one here is the sole determiner of uh, what everybody should get, that everyone should be equal, that the outcomes should all be the same, and that the, there is a body of, of, of people or that the church somehow is making sure that everyone is uh, ending up with the exact same amount of money or of things. There's no individual version of equality. And in fact, 
just the opposite. It said that they had such unity of spirit and such unity of purpose that it changed their attitudes. They didn't, there wasn't, the church was not telling them you must give. Christ changed their hearts. They had a change of attitude so that when they looked at their money and their possessions, they said, this is not my own. None of this is mine. And that radical change of attitude then turned into taking radical actions so that they voluntarily did whatever it took to ensure that there was not a needy person within the church. See, that's totally different than some sort of outside political scheme. That's a motivation from the heart. That is a complete change from what the world does and what our natural tendency is. Their actions did not assure equality in their standard of living. It ensured that every need was met. Now, here we have this foreshadowing that we know will comprehensively and eternally take place when there is a new heaven and a new earth. But the reality as well is that this kind of heavenly experience, this is why I'm suggesting that it's uh, descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive, is that this whole heavenly reality that they're having now where the full number um, are of one accord, it didn't last. In fact, uh, Paul in later chapters is going to call out churches because they're not participating in the giving for others that have need. So, the, you know, the, this beautiful scene we see at the beginning, it doesn't actually last, even within the church itself. And so you can look at that and you go, okay, is this version, this, uh, this Acts 4 version of the church, is that a, a sustainable model? Is that what we should all be doing? Throwing all of our money in together. And I would say that there was something unique and special going on, and to that degree, it is descriptive and not prescriptive. Like we see here in this early church that people sold out, quite literally, to ensure that nobody had any needs. They were selling their homes. They were... uh, Uh, It says in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, you can probably already see some of the similarities or how there's overlap, though, between what is descriptive of that era and what is prescriptive that applies to us today and that we should consider for ourselves. We saw before that the church, that early church, applied to them and it applies to us today, is that the early church had a habit of gathering together. They came together with one mind. In fact, one thing that I was speaking specifically about last week is that they had one mind when it came to prayer. 
Remember, they were of one accord. That was like their natural reaction was that when they came together, they wanted to go to the throne of God. And when Peter and John reported what had happened to them, that kind of that first episode of persecution, they came to their own people and reported that. And what was their response? They lifted up their voices together to God. That's just a natural outcome of a church, of a godly family. That's what families do. You go to your own people, you report what's going on, and you are of one accord in going, lifting up your voices to God. Because the Christian life is not a solo event. This is what God, God continues as you get sanctified, as you sit under the preaching of the word, as you go before him to pray, as you read his word, you realize more and more this is not about you and that this Christian life is not a solo event. When you go to get a college degree, there are a couple different ways. Colleges do it differently. Now, the normal, the more, or maybe not normal, the more common way when you do it is if you're going to decide to get a college degree, you set up an appointment with an advisor, you sit down with them, they pull it out, here's the path to graduation. You've got to take classes A, B, C, and this is how you're going to get from where you are today to graduating one day. That's kind of the normal way of doing business. A different way of going about it, and what some schools do, is they do a cohort design. Now, in that design, you are with a group of people. See, in the first design, there might be other people that are in the same degree program as you, and you, you'll see them occasionally in certain classes because they're headed in the same direction of you, and you're like, hey, I recognize you from so-and-so's class. But they have no impact and no bearing on your path to getting your degree. You just happen to be occupying space in the same classes. When you do a cohort, you begin the class together, you end the class together, you're with the same group of people experiencing the thing. Now you're individuals, and so you bring different things to the class, but you're going through this thing as a group. And that is a closer model to what takes place with the church, is that we are going through this. This, this group of people, we are going through this at the same time, and we share this experience together. We gather together. We pray together. We are of one mind, or as verse 32 put it, we are of one heart and one soul. And while we can look at the early stages of the New Testament church being created and see that they are selling lands and selling houses to meet the needs of others, and that we can kind of look at that and go, wow, that that seems kind of extreme. What we know for sure that does apply to us today that was at work in those decisions is that there is a principle that revolves around your attitude towards money and possessions. This is where it gets personal. There is a principle that revolves around your attitude about money and possessions. In fact, one's attitude about money and about the stuff that you have will impact the actions that you take. I want to make sure that I measure my words here so that you aren't listening to me and you are listening to God's word. It is important for all of us to recognize, if you are one of God's children, that 
you are a steward. You are a caretaker of the things that you have. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 and 8 say, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Therefore, your responsibility with your money, your stuff, is to use it for God's glory. It does not mean that you cannot enjoy it, but your number one responsibility is to use it for God's glory. And here's part of it is that it's not just your duty. Yes, that's, that's there, but it's about your attitudes toward them. And I'm asking you to examine your attitude about your money and your possessions and to let your attitude about that verify, or let God's word rather verify how that applies to your faith. Now, just so you understand, I'm not purporting some number. You're not going to hear me say, here's a number that qualifies you as being holy. Here's a percentage of your income that's going to earn you a stamp on your heavenly passport. I don't want to see anybody's bank statements. You, I don't know if you realize this. We don't, other than the treasurer, none of the leadership here knows how much any person in this church gives. We don't know. That's by design. Only because of logistical purposes, the treasurer has access and has to do the bookkeeping. But other than that, we do not even know what any person gives. We have a federal faith in which Christ is head over all things to the church, but the church does not operate as a federal banking system. This is a heart issue. Think about this way. Husbands, if you were to walk through the door and see that your wife was just completely overwhelmed, whatever's going on in her life, maybe a number of things have not gone well, but you walked in and she was just at wit's end, and you pulled out your checkbook essentially and said, what's it going to cost me to get you to feel okay? You know, what does that communicate? Or if a child comes home from school, clearly had a very difficult day at school. Or a family member receives a really tough medical diagnosis that came out of the blue. And your response in those situations was to say, okay, what's this going to cost me to, for us to be square and for you to feel better about our relationship? And, Wait, What? That makes no sense at all. At a minimum, that demonstrates a complete coldness within the relationship. And really, you could take that all the way out, depending how you view it, out to betrayal. Like, what are you talking about? Now, instead, if in those same scenarios, somebody, you see the situation, and your response is, wow, what do you need? How can I help? And the answer to the question involved something financial. That's a, and you said, okay, I, I am able to do that. I am happy to do that. Let me do that to fill that need. 
totally different circumstance. Already, your heart is in the right place with a willingness to part with some of your money or some of your possessions to fill a need. That is responding financially because you are wanting to meet a legitimate need that is based on love for the other person. These are decisions that are made that are not just, you know, how many zeros does it take? You know, I I had to ask uh, Pastor Nick before the service, we had a few minutes, we were sitting there, and and I turned to him and I said, do you remember ever preaching about money since we've been here? He said, no, no, I haven't done that. And so I know I haven't either. So in the four and a half years anyway that we've been in existence, this is not, this is our first, this is first time from this pulpit, you know, as a primary topic, money and possessions has been one of these sermons. But what is clear from Scripture, and so therefore here we are, and that must be preached, is that there is a connection between finances and faith. It exists there. After the rich young ruler walked away sorrowful, Jesus taught, because after he walked away, he turned and he talked to the people, and this is what he said. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There was a physical thing in there. I know we, we usually when we you go to that reference about leaving those things, it's, it's just over the, the general category of sacrifice, but there is, this is a very specific list, and it includes those who are willing to separate themselves from earthly possessions. Your attitude towards money and possession leads to action, and this can be an indicator. And in fact, uh, I really liked one person that I read. This is a, I pulled a quote from him, and, and he said on this topic that it's a circulatory system of grace in the body of Christ. This idea of the relationship between financial things and whatever you've been given and your faith and, and, and taking care of the needy and being a meaningful, legitimate, fiscal partner with the church. He refers to it as a circulatory system of grace in the body of Christ. And when I thought that through and I looked back over the verses and I realized, well, that's pretty much what's going here in the flow of these verses. It says here in verses 32 to 34, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. There was great power in the testimony of the apostles. There was great grace. There was not a needy person among them. So those are phrases I pulled out of those verses. And so we see that flow. We see that, uh, that dynamic taking place that has a connection between love and grace and also viewing what they have as not their own and willingness to share to make sure that there is nobody needy among them. So for the last part, this whole verification business, it's a two-part verification. One, so now this is self-examination, okay? One, what is your attitude about your money and your stuff? You've got to ask yourself that question. How do you view it? You know, what is your mentality? What is going on in your heart when you see 
your bank accounts, your savings accounts, your, um, your investment accounts, you know, you have to evaluate your attitude in relation to that. And the second thing is what are your actions, the actual things you do with your money and your stuff. And here's the reason that both of those questions are important. It's not that you just want to say, well, as long as you have the right attitude, the actions will automatically follow. Because the reality is a giver can have a poor attitude, and people that appear to have the best attitude ever are poor givers. Those both apply. And we actually can see those example in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 15, it talks about uh, the sabbatical year. So the design at that time was that if you gave money to the needy, in the seventh year, you had to forgive them anything that they owed. So in other words, you're giving to the needy, but there's automatically an expectation that you owe me. And so in an effort to maintain you know, some justice or maybe some charity within the, um, uh, within the design of the community, God instituted the sabbatical year so that on, on the seventh year, all was forgiven. But here's where the issue comes in, and this is what Deuteronomy 15 discusses. Don't give people money grudgingly in that sixth year. Do you see the problem? Is because the heart is that, yeah, I'm going to give you the money, but the problem is that you're going to be off the hook here in no time. Like, so, so the, it went straight to an issue of the heart. It wasn't even just that, hey, why won't you give somebody? So here you have an example of people that were actually willing to give, but in their heart, while they're giving, they're complaining. Well, if I give in year six, you don't, you know, we're free and clear, like there's no expectation. I mean, that, that's a horrible way to give, even though you're actually giving. Another example comes out of Proverbs 23 that talks about uh, that talks about the heart here. Proverbs 23 verses 6 and 7. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. See, this is going on inside. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. See, you can have givers that are doing it and internally are absolutely have the wrong attitude. The second thing is that there can be people that appear to, ha- to be very godly, to have all the right answers, for their heart seemingly to be in exactly the right place. But that also... Is addre- and yet they don't give at all, and that also is addressed in James 2, verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother, ha- if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
See, there can also be people that have plenty of good things to say. They could show you out of Scripture what you need to hear, a willingness to pray for you and with you. And even though you have a legit or a person has a legitimate physical need, it's like, yes, okay, be on your way now. Because they don't actually want to part with something that they own. I'm going to close with some very sobering words. Well, they're not my sobering words. This is God's word, and it comes from Matthew 25. And I invite you to turn there, Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46. And you, too, you have probably read these verses before, but I want you to hear these verses in connection to money and stuff, okay? There are eternal, eternity is in the balance here when we read these things. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, in these two examples, contrasted, side by side, one related to eternal punishment and one related to eternal life, in both cases, neither of them were, had chosen their actions knowing that God was watching. Their actions resulted from their attitudes about God based on their faith in God. That's why they had to ask the question. Both of them did. Each of them did. Lord, when, wait, when did that happen? Because it started with their attitude and their actions based on their faith. And one of them, as part of the circulatory system of grace in the body of Christ, took care of the physical needs of those within the body. They saw that the command to bear one another's burdens wasn't the be warmed and filled version. 
It didn't stop at the, oh man, I'm gonna, I'll pray for you. This person didn't view his money and possessions as his own. But the other saw, exclusive, saw what he had as exclusively his. This is mine. It belongs to me. And it will be used exclusively for my own benefit. Now, this is what I'm saying, is that follow the money for yourselves. You do the math in your own life. When you follow the money, does it lead to a conclusion of an overprotective possessiveness in your attitude and in your action? Or does it demonstrate a contentment, submission, humility, trust, and ensures that there is not going to be anyone needy among us. Let's pray. Lord, this is convicting for all of us. You have given us plenty, and Lord, we are, we, we are so quick to white-knuckle what it is that we have. Help us, Lord. Conform our attitude to your word. May we use this to examine our own lives and make changes where we need to so that it brings glory to you. May we not view what we have as our own. May we recognize that all that we have has been given from your hand. Lord, help us to be sensitive to the needs of others and willing to make sure that there are none that are needy among us. In Christ's name, amen.